Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. And tonight's guest is Howard Lake. Howard is a digital entrepreneur. He started a online fundraising portal, which has lasted the test of time, almost a quarter of a century old. And as a fundraiser operating in London in the 90s, it was uh, an absolute goldmine for information where there wasn't any other gold elsewhere. Delighted to. Do you know what? And in, in researching this episode, um, I've realised that you've got a lake named after you. Did you know that? <laughs> I've come across one. Which one have you? Which one have you? Uh, the one I came across was in Minnesota. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you know what? They, um, I came across them because they were really quick off the mark. They registered howardlake.com um, before I could. Um, ah. <laughs> so that's why I'm ne- I can never be howardlake.com. Um, so maybe I think maybe all I can hope for is maybe the freedom of the city or something, given how much I've, I've promoted the name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and considering how long you've um, been, you know, conscious of the digital world, they, they were early adapters. They definitely. were, they were. Yeah. So hats off to them. Well done. Yeah. I, must, I must visit them one day. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, just checking in with you, really, and it uh, feels like you've got a really important job um, in terms of COVID and, uh, you know, the, our sector, the third sector, the charity sectors, um, it ha- has been as being massively hit. Um, yeah. You know, what, what role are you finding yourself playing in that? I think it's, it's more of the same. I mean, my, what I've done for the last nearly 26 years is run the website UK Fundraising um, as a free resource for professional charity fundraisers, in theory in the UK, but actually the joy of it is right from the beginning, people from around the world have used it and contributed to it. Um, so I just see that I'm in the fortunate position of running digital content for fundraisers, and that's pretty much the main way um, that fundraisers are getting their information, news, advice, and equally importantly, communicating with other fundraisers and staying sane and, and motivated. Yeah, and I really want to get into that. Um, but before I do, so on a personal level, what has you know, um, lockdown COVID been like for you? Again, very fortunate um, because my business is almost entirely online, has been from the beginning. Um, I, it, that wasn't a big change. I'd worked from home for the last 23 years. So again, lockdown working from home was not um, a major issue for me. Um, I think my only change was having members of my family um, effectively in my day office, um, which was lovely. But yeah, that was my quiet workspace suddenly was was, was no longer. But yeah, in, in, in a great way. How about you? Yeah. How did how did it Yeah, so I'm in New Zealand, and we had a very very strict lockdown initially, which um, you know, it's interesting how governments have approached things, uh, and ours has been absolute clarity on what we're doing. Not everyone's agreeing mm-hmm. with how we've done it. Yeah. Um, and that initial lockdown period feels very harsh now, you know, like a lot of businesses weren't able to open. Um, on a very selfish note, I, I, I'm, you know, love uh, interacting with people. And I found that, that difficult, um, you know, not being out and about mm-hmm. struggled. And I don't, I don't like doing it via Zoom as much. Did, did you <laughs> struggle? Did you struggle with that sort of, or not so much? Um, 
I mean, a mixture of both. I mean, yes, I, I love meeting up with people. I love doing training in person, consultancy, whatever, traveling to, to fundraising congresses and so on. So, yeah, absolutely, I miss that. Um, I think with Zoom, I'd, I'd used it quite a few times beforehand and other things, and it luckily kind of worked out that is not something I want to be spending my day doing. Um, you know, one, two Zooms a day, fine, but anything more than that, and it's, it's exhausting. So, in a way, I was lucky I'd, I'd been burned early on um, to know not to commit to doing what I see so many people doing, which is almost being on Zoom for the whole day. Um, sometimes it's unavoidable, but generally, yeah, it's it's an important tool, but it's it's only a tool and all the other human interactions are pretty damn important. Even yeah. if it's yeah, a walking meeting, if you still have the opportunity to meet with other people, meeting them outside um, would be one of the ways to do it. I love the idea of walking meetings. Yeah, uh, totally. And one one thing that um, struck me in research us was you you've had a love for fundraising for seemingly a very long time. So you you um, I I uh, managed to find that, that you were part of the RAG or a, a key driver <laughs> in the RAG RAG at Oxford University. Is that is that true? That's kind of it. Yes, we set up. Mm. Um, I think. We, well, that was probably my first active fundraising activity. Um, and again, with an element of social. So, you know, with fellow students who had an interest in that. Um, I had no real background in it, but I wanted to do it and do some good and see how good I was at it. Um, so, yeah, student time is a great time. Um, obviously, not quite the same at the moment for most students. But um, we could be as creative as we wanted. Um, there was some sort of slight background support and we we could also talk to and meet with some of the charities that we were fundraising for which was great so that was when I first got to meet with people who actually worked at Oxfam which for a sort of 18 19 year old was just just astonishing um yeah it was, yeah. yeah so yes that's kind of it was you're right it is it is a love and a fascination with fundraising and what it can do um from early times yeah, and and just for clarification for the international audience, um, rag is raise and give, is what it means. So, um, but universities often raise hundreds of thousands um, for good causes, which felt like a really formative experience for a lot of people, uh, and and a good discipline. So it is. Um, can I come back to that just because yeah. um, rag um, another sort of student. Um, networks have actually led to an incredible number of now senior um fundraisers and charity chief execs so it's a fabulous place to start so i would encourage charities if they have if they're in contact with uh, students and the university networks or higher education networks um you may well find future leaders um amongst them so definitely definitely talk to them yeah yeah no that's interesting to hear so a huge achievement getting into oxford i think um that's that's fantastic and uh i had you done as as studying history is is that right <laughs> yes um yeah. mo modern history was was my degree and i still yeah i still mm. have a love for that um still read it research it when i can but yeah that's kind of my background yeah and that then led to a master's degree um at city university london was it was there a gap in between or did you did you disappear across the world or no, def definitely no. no no gap um sorry there was a gap um of because i was working um so in between that i worked for oxfam um again i was really lucky right place right time so I, my very first job was was a regional fundraiser for oxfam working across three um english counties um in sort of middle of england and great you know that's where i made loads of mistakes learned how to actually do it and talked to donors and met them 
um, encouraged volunteers, worked with volunteers. So yeah, looking back on it, what a brilliant, brilliant time. I then worked for another charity. Sorry, John, you're going to ask something. I was going to, all I was going to say actually was I remember my very first coming out of university, my very first role in fundraising was accidental. Mm. Um, but I remember having a very good teacher uh, and I really reflect on the fundraising pyramid. Yeah. Uh, which do you, is that is that your early memory fundraising period pyramid at the Oxford um, as your regional fundraising assistant? Yeah. I've got down, but yeah. yeah. What was what was that a kind of good good early grounding? I think it was. It was it was less of the theory. Look, I mean, looking back on it, it was really the day to day, getting out, meeting people, talking to you know local businesses, individuals, um, sort of the more active fundraising groups of volunteers. Um, and actually, again, talking about you, you said you were inspired by someone. There was um, my my boss uh, Vera um, was just an astonishing fundraiser. She to me, she it sort of embodied all that was powerful about fundraising she had no fear of asking and that was wonderful to watch I just there are times when certainly in the beginning I, I definitely was scared of asking people or asking well but she could just do it so I was truly lucky to to work on a daily basis with this amazing amazing woman who just mm. who just let nothing get in her way <laughs> it was yeah yeah really really brilliant so yeah very lucky. nice fantastic and so then you went on to uh, Afghan aid, which yeah. I know a little about. So we've, um, I've had some dealings with Afghan aid, and mm. um, did that? Did that include a trip to Afghanistan? It did, or well, technically to the border of Afghanistan, because at that point, no one, certainly no one, with just I was, I was fundraiser rather than any field expert, expert expertise. So we went at that point. The charity was operating cross border from uh, Peshawar, northwest frontier province of Pakistan. So yeah, um, I got got two field visits there. Um, and actually did do, do a fundraising ask to a, a um, Pakistan-based bank, um, which was fascinating. Um, yeah. But yeah, amazing. Mm. That was, I learned more about international aid um, in those sort of two-week two trips. Just, just astonishing. Um, so yes, very lucky to have done that and to have seen the, the work, or at least sort of the one end of the work um, being done and the people involved as well. Astonishing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think interesting you say about lessons actually, because I've interviewed a number of people for this podcast who work in international development, and I think the main uh, lesson I've heard is repeated, repeated is not to, to do unto them. Um, work with you know communities, countries, developing nations um, with them to solve the problem. Mm. Um, help help them find the um, solutions, and, and would would that be in the in the, in the book of lessons I, I would say so i mean yes we mm. have to be um, and doubly so we now seem to be waking up eventually to uh, all these issues of sort of white saviorism and and all sort of the, the there's some bad practices that, that have gone on in international development um so yeah it's just much more complicated and nuanced than certainly i had any idea at the time and yeah so because you've got donors funding you know schools or or community centers that you know, six months, nine months later, just didn't exist because, you know, the, the community didn't ask for them. Yeah, or... absolutely. <laughs> you know, yes. Like, yeah. And that's why I love all the attempts to kind of make, get that information across and, and sort of train, to explain to donors here as well, um, some of the nuances of this. So yes, international development um, is, it's, it's, yeah, been a, a very steep learning curve for me right, right back to those days from Oxfam onwards. And I, 
I kind of um, I've noticed that you you know you clearly like writing, so you sort of ended up specialising in trust fundraising, uh, from what I could tell. Um, and is that because you 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 really like writing? You like write, writing a case for support or? Um... Good point. Um, actually, I think trust the trust fundraising was part of it. I think that's probably my the, my third job, which was at Amnesty International, where I was I was fundraiser for Amnesty's trust. So it wasn't just trust fundraising; it was all the mm. charitable elements that Amnesty, as a campaigning body, could do under UK law. So again, that was quite an, another learning experience. I'll try and just briefly explain it. Amnesty and Greenpeace um, and Friends of the Earth and other sort of campaigning bodies under UK law, because they are campaigning to change government policy, um, they can't be registered charities. And as a result, they don't get all the various tax benefits of, of charities. But lots of them do some work which is charitable. Um, so some human rights work was charitable then under UK law. Um, so they could have a separate charity which could do all the kind of traditional charity fundraising, um, such as fundraising from legacies, from trusts, um, tax-effective giving, and so on. So that was the bit that I dealt with. So effectively, it was, mm. amnesty, it was amnesty, but it was one, it was the charitable arm of amnesty. Yeah, okay. No, it does. And so developing at this point was a real um, curiosity, I guess, or an interest in the internet and, and things digital. And, you know, I remember my first job, um, it was for a, um, a charity focused on poverty. And I remember like one internet access for the CEO only. So <laughs> this is, a, yes, you know, this I'm is sure. a bit before fundraising uh, UK that, you know, you set up, but um, where, did, where did that interest come from? When did that start developing? I don't really know because I had no tech or science background um, when I was at school and university. There were just there were no computers for for um, students. Um, so my brother, younger brother, did have a Sinclair ZX Spectrum, I think, one of these very early home computers. But I had no interest in that. Where it came about, I don't know. But I did get access to email when I started at Oxfam in 1989, and then at um, Amnesty. Uh, sorry, at, at Afghan Aid, I had to use email. So good I'd dial up with that whistling noise of the connection mm, yeah. um, from, from Pakistan to the UK. So I think it was those were probably what made me think, wow, this is astonishing. You can contact people around the world, um, you know, using very basic technology. So, yeah. yeah, that's probably where it came from. But before then, absolutely no tech, no tech background or interest. Yeah, because I... I mean, let's let's give our listeners a bit of context. So, um, fundraising UK Limited, or the site that I I'll tell you about, how my mm. uh, interaction with it. But you know, like it it it's massive, right? So this it's it became a very important resource. Like, can we can we throw some numbers at it just for the audience in terms of like yeah. yeah. It's, it's, so it's a news website, news and community website for professional fundraisers. It's open to anyone. Um, it's there's never been any charge to access it, um, and, but it is profit making. Then, with I sell ads to fundraising companies, and so basically, fundraising companies pay to to keep it going. Um, so it's been published now. Next in two months' time, it'll have been published for twenty six years, um, and it published daily. It's it's anything that the idea is that it helps. It's designed to help fundraisers raise more money. So that's information, not just from me, but anyone else who's got anything to contribute. I don't care whether that's another journalist, a fundraiser, a fundraising agency, a policymaker, a major donor, 
anything that is is of use to, to more than one charity pretty much goes there or has done. So in terms of numbers, um, what have we got? We get about 150, 140, 150,000 paid views, which is about 40,000 40, individuals visiting it each month now. Um, we have mailing lists and needless to say, we're, we, we use social as well. So all the various channels that have cropped up over the years, we always sort of grab those, test, test them out and, and share more fundraising information. Yeah, yeah really lucky. It's, um, it is a huge resource. It's, it's a challenge to manage it and then update it and so on. Um, so some, sometimes there are some uh, creaky bits around, but, but it's, yeah, it's wonderful because it's a resource and it's an archive as well. So if you ever need to sort of wonder about a campaign or a, a fundraising news story from 10, 15 years ago, chances are we may well have covered it. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I quite like that. That's the historian in me just recognising there's this quarter of a century of fundraising history there as well. Yeah, so. yeah, no, no, absolutely love that. And, it, it, you know, it, it, as a fundraiser working in London at the time in that in that 90s period, it was a um, very valuable resource. And, you know, there just wasn't much around. And, and one mm. thing that struck me, actually, I, I read in preparation was it was um, a global first. So... Yeah, that be, yeah. It was kind of better than anything else that anyone else was else trying to do globally. <laughs> I thought. Well, I certainly um, looked, and I couldn't find you. it. Thank yeah. Yes, I mean, I think I, it, I, it was the world's first web resource for for professional charity fundraisers. There were other sites covering the sector. Absolutely, um, Charity Village in Canada, I think, um, was publishing to the wider charity sector. Um, some of whom were fundraisers, obviously. Um, so yeah, absolutely wasn't the first charity resource by any means, but the first one dedicated to professional fundraisers. But equally with a with a knowledge that the public or volunteer fundraisers or anyone else with any interest in fundraising could use it as well. And so it's it's www.fundraising.co.uk is right. what I saw the site yep. to be. So actually, that that meant it could be global and that people it could make sense to people anywhere across the world. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, again, yeah. And because it publish, I publish in English. Um, that obviously gives has an inbuilt advantage to reach many more people. And so, just like thinking back to that week, those months that you started it, what did you code it? You like, did you have to code it yourself? Because <laughs> back then, you it wouldn't have been a Wix option where you could just drag and no, drop. No, 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 no. Like, tell us about those very early moments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's in a way looking back on it, that was a lovely thing to have to do, but. I mean, yeah, there weren't. There were one or two web design agencies, but crikey, they they charged a huge amount, and none of them were interested in the charity sector. They were after the banks and the big, big commercial brands. So no, I, I taught myself HTML, web coding language, and and not only wrote the content, but also had to code it in. Um, there was it was before content management systems. Um, so yeah, everything was page by page, and there was no no database behind it so if you had to change something on one page you would end up having to edit that you know say the say the year changed and you had a copyright statement at the bottom of every page you'd have to do some very clever find and replace stuff um to to edit every single page so yeah mm. in looking back on it a nightmare but but it was it was a good way to learn just how to present content and, and understand how web content is, is delivered or digital content is delivered yeah. Because even if you'd not made a penny out of it, and it just in terms of the learning that you must have had, and and just so you're also, you know, you've got to drive people to the site. So mm. 
uh, big lessons. How how did you do that? How did you? Because there were no other places, and it was pre-social media, it, um, and even email um, was was fairly slow to take off in terms of fundraisers using it for their professional development. Um, I just had to go, well, had to chose to go, and was lucky to be invited to to conferences. So I just kind of made a name for myself, sharing what I was discovering and covering um, by talking at conferences, which was was lucky because there wasn't there weren't really any wasn't anyone else doing that, which was mm. fortunate for me. So yeah, physical, good old talking to people face to face, always banging on about it. That always helped, um, and dealing with the general. It, was, it wasn't so much scepticism; it was just complete <laughs> lack of interest. Yeah, from within yeah. the sector, with, really? some, with some honourable exceptions, obviously, and, pe- and people like you, people who got it, they they got it, but um, yeah. there was a lot of effort to try and explain. And once other organisations, and particularly sort of national bodies, started using it, then yeah, it started to to take off. Yeah, yeah early days, because yeah. this is pre. <laughs> So I've I've at the, I've arrived sort of in London, uh, 19, back in London in 1999, and, and yep. took a job at the Terence Higgins Trust, and yes. um, and I remember being sold sort of internet-based um, <laughs> products. So what, what companies were trying to do was they're trying to get validation from the charity sector, so yes. they were looking to us <laughs> for that, you know, and they were they were sort of there's some good like some of the stuff was good it was kind of early youtube if you like but mm. there was that there was that real um i think the crash came didn't it um yeah 2000, at, do, 2000 yeah <laughs> and and what did that do to you guys did that jolt you or? not really i think i mean it may have put some some advertisers off thinking you know that finally this this fad is 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 dying away but yeah i mean it was it was shocking it was it was a surprise i um needless to say did not see that coming but it didn't really because we although we were commercial um I, I don't think it affected us too much beyond i think just challenging people's you know the amount that fundraisers or charities in particular were likely to invest in digital and we didn't even call it digital in those days but um so yes um i weathered that one quite easily it didn't really seem to affect me but I, it probably had an impact on the sec charity sector of perhaps slowing down investment or willingness to invest. Yeah, it kind of backed up all the naysayers, didn't it? So we all went, yeah, oh, yeah, that, yeah. that, that <laughs> internet thing's never going to catch on. And um, Exactly. You know, that was a uh, very common phrase. Yeah, <laughs> little little did we know. Um, yeah. so, you, so it's not a not-for-profit. It's a commercial venture. It is a commercial venture. Yeah, I did yeah. think about making it a charity, but th- yeah, there was no chance under UK or English char- charity law at the time. Um, and also it would have meant to some extent fairly restrictive reporting requirements. So actually it was far better to make it fully commercial, um, yeah. even if it was free for access. That just gave me the, the much wider hand, and I'm glad I did. I don't think I would have survived yeah. as a charity. No, I think, no, um, no funding for that kind of stuff in those days. No, no, no funding and potentially very difficult to report on certain things. Or Yes. You know. yeah. so, and it's, has it been your main source of income? throughout that uh, quarter of a century yep um yep. so it was profit profitable within within the first year so 1995 it was profitable and i left amnesty after five years in 97 so it has been my full-time job since 1997 yeah so 20, 23 and, years fantastic and so how big a team have you got working out at the moment um i am one of those odd organizations where i am the only employee 
Um, so it is a one, technically a one-person company, wow. um, which is how I like. I kind of wanted it to run. I wanted it to be as virtual as possible. Um, but I've got anything up to about seven or eight people working for me as freelancers um, or, or as an agency doing all kinds of things from journalism to tech development, um, advertising sales and so on. So, yeah, there's always been a team, um, but it really has been has been virtual um, right from the beginning. And there are definitely there are team members I remember who I, I never did meet in person wow. chatted or in email or digital contact. But, yeah, never met. Fantastic. So, yeah, that's um, that's very uh, common now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now that's, yeah. It, it passes with almost without remark. But yeah, that's yeah. right. It was, it was less very less different. Common. Yeah, and ever ever got bored? Ever ever thought? Do you know what? I just can't do another week of this. Or no. it doesn't sleep. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't sleep, does it? A it really doesn't. Like it. I mean, that's no. the thing. Um, I mean, just if anything, it's got that slight sort of perfectionist approach of oh, there's so much more that we should be covering. Um, so yes, I kind of, I can, I can get frustrated with my limitations of time and, uh, you know, tech skills to add more content or make content more relevant to each individual that uses it. I'd love to be able to create effectively a sort of personalized version, um, that they just grab the information they want. But in terms of getting bored, absolutely not because A, it's fundraising, which is changing and improving and being wonderfully creative and necessary all the time. But also digital. I mean, even if I just try and try and keep up with latest digital developments, I, you know, I long ago gave up thinking I could do that. So it's it's kind of just choosing a few things. There's more than enough that's that's inspiring, because yeah. as you know, the the sector, the charity sector, and fundraising sector around the world is just full of astonishing people who turn nothing into into gold, effectively for for good yeah. works. Yeah, hundred percent, and. Just in terms of the future of the website, and, and I think the future um, of digital, they're talking about um, mobile as king. So you mm -hmm. know, mobile mobile first and desktop second. Would yes. you would you agree with that assertion? I'd agree, um, absolutely. I mean, we are mobile, and certainly, you know, just looking at any of the research into usage of the different um, methods, different tools. Um, yes, it's been mobile first for quite a while. Not to say desktop laptop doesn't exist but i think the real issue is not so much which one dominates at any time it's just effectively the medium by which you we all choose to access content is always going to be changing um and your content just simply has to be designed so that it works on anything whether it's widescreen tv whether it's you know a tiny phone whether it's a desktop um and that's and that's good for all kinds of things, not least accessibility, to ensure that these tools and content can be used by anyone, whether using screen adapter or any other tool to ensure that they can, can access it. So yes, yeah. it's, that's what's the, the joy of, of digital to me, that it can break down barriers and if implemented correctly, can be used by anyone irrespective of disability and, and language as well with, with you know, live language yeah. translation. So, yeah, yeah. And do you miss fundraising? Pers I mean, you, or are you still doing some? Um, I do a little in terms of consultancy, but no, most of it, most of it is I just do some sort of personal stuff. But no, I mean, writing about fundraising and I, I have one of the best jobs because I get to see and learn and share um, about inspiring fundraising. So, no, I, I think I still see myself as a fundraiser, but I don't, I can't claim any of, um, I 
can't claim to be a day-to-day fundraiser, um, but I do get to write about it, which is kind of the next best thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like what, what I always thought about fundraising, it's you'd have a fundraiser department for, say, a fairly large charity, um, and the roles were quite different, you know, so some of it you could really sort of talk about being marketing, some of it was PR, um, and often people would be kind of badged up as fundraisers, but actually fundraising was probably their least favourite thing to do and, and probably the <laughs> thing that, and, and I think sometimes that's where the, you know, where the sector can go a bit wrong and that, you know, um, and then the other point I thought is around the cycle of fundraising. So people don't see there's a lot of uh, churn in fundraising where people sort of stay two or three years. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of that to me is around uh, ridiculous expectations about what fundraisers can achieve in isolation. Mm. Um, do you, what's your what's your kind of what's your thesis on fundraising and fundraisers? If in your I know you got thoughts, but yeah, I mean I think yeah fundraisers have an incredibly hard job, and it's sometimes made or traditionally made unnecessarily harder um i think you know thing, things are changing there is better education of trustees and and senior managers um in terms of expectations and budgeting but also the mental health um efforts or impact of fundraising on many fundraisers with we're always up against or fundra- many fundraisers are up against almost impossible targets and even pre-covid that was that was a problem i think the sector is well i can't say globally but I, I see good good works. I, I see people speaking out um, and sort of demanding more, just a kinder approach um, to fundraising and a more impro- impro- more understanding approach. So, yeah, it's there is still huge burnout um, and doubly so now under current conditions. Yeah. Um, but there's, I see some progress, which is which is encouraging. I think that relationship with the trustees is really important one actually because. The cycle is sometimes as um, commercial-minded or experienced board members come in in a voluntary capacity. Um, they look, they sort of run the rule over a fundraising output or team and then sort of judge it badly <laughs> or poorly um, and use quite blunt instruments, don't they, often to measure. So, um, But there's some sort of nuances of fundraising. There's some, sort of, there's some magic there and actually yeah. it's not the same as you know, commercial selling something, it's, it is different. Um, and education for trustees, I think, to see, to understand the third sector better was, is, is good, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, absolutely. you know, cause that, that saves a lot of heartache and, uh, like you say, mental health issues. One frustration for me, um, actually is he's not a, a kind of universal term for our sector. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Like I find, I find I, that's, that's difficult for me right now with uh, my podcast. Cause I, I, I want to, it to be easily recognisable, you know, for, across the globe. And mm. but um, have you got a, fa- a favourite? Just before we move on, I I don't. Except I kind of I just revert to charity, um, and I agree that really ignores social enterprise. It ignores some in, um, international NGOs, and charity can mean different things outside the UK, outside New Zealand, or even a sort of you know uh, shared heritage or shared legal system like that it's it's not the best word but i've been through this so many times and I, i'm sure you have as well you know you start some, talking about third sector civil society they're all good words but they do they do you think most supporters um actually understand what they mean and my guess is they don't and fine mm. I, I get that most people don't understand really what a charity is um yeah. it's 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 odd given how big the charities have become as in terms of 
a sector, an employer, and a sort of impact on society. Um, uh, yeah, nonprofit again. That's a, that kind of is is used, but you and I know that's technically a, a tax code under US tax law. So yeah. I don't know. Have, have you got? Can you? Can you no, get, I, can I, you get better than I, charity? I'm no, I'm no clear either. I mean, I I think there's an element of the fact that we've both been in the UK for a long time mm. and you're still there and, and we're hardwired. With, yeah. you know, and, and in fact, I don't think charity has a negative connotation that maybe does in England as it does around the world. Yeah. Um, it's seen as quite a positive thing in, in England, but yes, yeah, and it's, it's just, it, it can be frustrating sometimes because nonprofit, like you say, um, it could be a bit negative actually yeah. um, to be, to be non something, you know, like you're, yeah. um, I mean, the one I've heard is a, kind of for purpose but um you know you could be a you could be a profitable company (laughs) uh so it doesn't you know be for purpose but but hey um moving on so thinking about the current conditions and you know i saw in your tweets and and other um platforms that you've said when the when the kind of crisis covid crisis hit you you said just keep on keeping on which i think in, in hindsight actually was really good advice and I know from my own charity, we pivoted from, you know, in-person collections mm. to sort of some more digital type. Um, but, but how do you feel a few months on from saying that? Does it, that feels, feels, feels good? <laughs> it, it, it does. It, I, it sounds a little trite and I really don't want to, don't want to do that. But I mean, yeah, we, the need is still great. Um, we can't achieve all that we used to achieve. Um, charities now know they can't even keep fundraisers employed as, as they were six six months ago so it's absolutely different it's horrendous for beneficiaries um service users for the people who are losing their jobs and the people who are making other people redundant um yeah i think the only the best advice i i saw was to see this situation as a almost like a campaign like a, a charity charity campaign that just is a long-term experience, which will have ups and downs, peaks and troughs. So the idea of just going at it at the beginning, as I think most of us did, I certainly did, it was a crisis, so you just immediately start working extra hard to churn out more advice, content, put people in touch with each other. You can only do that for for a certain period. You have to step back despite the need. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm not telling you anything (laughs) we all don't know. so yes, I mean, I have I have no solutions except to be kind to each other, to work hard, but equally to stop working hard as well. Yeah, and that's yeah. yeah, it might be twee, but it's the only thing that's going to get I think most of us through. Yeah, and because in person has suddenly become really difficult, um, you know, digital starts to make a lot of sense. And I love the fact that the barrier to entry is so much easier, less expensive. Um, you know, like did you know contact management systems or yeah. Um, you know, like they're really much more accessible and less pricey, which yeah. is great. But so I imagine, I'm just guessing, but if you, you've had a quite a number of charities walking towards you saying, Howard, you know, you were doing this 25 years ago. How do we do digital? Like how, how are we effective in that space? Is that true? Have you had people? Yes. I mean, I think that's an ongoing question and still a challenge for most of us to try and work out how do we do what we do? better can digital make it better um different but more importantly better not not just different um yeah i mean and and even once you've got something sorted you know you've got an effective crm that gives you the 
360 degree analysis of supporters you know something then moves on and then something like facebook comes along or or whatever i mean it's just it's a never-ending approach to sort of adjusting of saying no to most things i think that's another problem is that inundation and i'm guilty of it by publishing my site to some extent we are inundated with ideas content opportunities and and just you can't spend all your time testing out new tools um yeah, yeah. so that that's so again yeah saying no is doubly a good thing at the moment i think focus on what you know is working what you can control um but yes expect never to have the answers certainly not with digital because because people's expectations change. I think that's the key thing. If you're meeting expectations as well as your, you know, the public's expectations or your supporters and staff and beneficiaries' expectations, then that's pretty good. Um, yeah, yeah. You just have to be aware that they're going to they're change or adapt. Um, and certainly in this past six months, adapt at speed. Yeah. And I think there'll be, well, there already is, um, beefing up of sort of digital areas of fundraising teams. And, and that kind of makes sense. But actually... I think quality content, um, telling storytelling about your cause, um, you know, and, and and in many ways that could be relatively straightforward. I guess the real shock to me is, you know, some of the charities I hold really dear um, just aren't able to deliver their services, which is, yeah. you know, is is, is um, really tough. And because what you want for those charities, you you know, they need to exist in six months. You know, twelve months longer yeah. they need to exist, but other, otherwise they're going to leave a huge vacuum. Um, yes. So it's kind of for me, it's survival mode at the moment. And um, I think your advice around treating it like a campaign to survive is is a is a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you have any? Because you know you've you were really early adopted to technology and, and digital. Um, you build a community. You, you know you um, brought a whole whole lot of traffic to your site. Um, any any regrets that you didn't go fully unbridled commercial and halfway, you know, sell it off and go and do something, repeat, repeat? Any any regrets? Um, oh, yes. I mean, I can, looking back, yes, I think I'd love it to have grown faster. Um, I would love to have had secured investment early on. I tell you, the one, the big thing that would have changed it, and it's the downside of being early in a certain sort of sector, is there was no obvious partner, another individual um, to set it up with. Um, I mean, there were people who helped and who supported me and I loved my Amnesty fundraising colleagues who admitted they really didn't quite get what I was banging on about. <laughs> but God, they thought that it was really important that I did and I, that was truly valuable. Um, so yeah, I think if you're ever starting something up from scratch, try and do it with some, at least one other person, not too many, two or three, because um, I think that would have would have changed what I did. I still never wanted to run a big web agency or a big publisher that employed loads of people. I definitely didn't want to. I liked the lean approach uh, from the beginning and stayed with that. Um, so yeah, there are, there could have been many other ways. I could have tried to set it up in multiple countries. Um, you know, if there was a fundra- UK fundraising, there could have been a, <laughs> an NZ fundraising. And obviously I know Finns and many other, there are so many, FINZ, there's so many other organizations that do provide information now for, for their yeah. national fundraisers. Um, and, and interesting, yeah. actually, that, okay. yeah, the, uh, Finns uh, and New Zealand Fundraising Institute, New Zealand, um, you know, they're, they're having a, a tough time at the they moment. Are. And yes. Yeah, they're, they're struggling in terms of, um, you know, and, and a lot of these kind of membership organizations are really reliant on 
you know, annual conferences which are yeah. under threat. And I imagine the same as in, in the UK. Yes, I, I, I don't know the financial situation of other organisations, but yes, I was worried to see that FINZ was, was having financial issues um, and mm. why it's so good to see them reaching out to in, the, you know, the international fundraising community um, because it's these infrastructure bodies that play such an important role in developing fundraising in the next you know, stage of fundraising. So, Completely. So yeah. yes, um, we need to... They deserve support just as much as actual charities that have a sort of a, a social or other other direct impact. Yeah, and hey, look, we we'll move towards wrapping up, but um, yeah. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. So have I. Thank you. Um, it's been it's been great, and it, you know, advice for someone who wanting to get into the sector, what what would that be um, specifically into fundraising? Um, do it because it's a fabulous sector full of astonishing, creative, resilient. Um, and, and kind people who do change the world. So if you, if you can see problems with the world, and crikey, we're not short of those. Um, fundraising is the way to do it. Things change through people, but also through money. Um, and that's the thing that motivates me all the time. It's using using money for a good social purpose. Um, that is that's fundraising. Um, so I would do it. I would just get as much experience about you know working with people, working with teams, um, working. You know, if it need, if you can volunteer for a charity great if not take part in a fundraising event learn learn how to do fundraising the hard way actually do it from your friends and family i mean most people do this anyway but um yeah i would definitely say just just try it um and if you get knocked back the first time that's because lots of people want these fabulous jobs so keep keep trying yeah and i think for me one definite thing is to to you know take a job or or do it for even if it's voluntary do it for something you really believe in um, mm. and feel passionate about it because yes. that is actually the real delight of this. Um, you know, you, you can do that. So, hey, thanks for joining me. It's been a blast and um, we'll keep in, cut, in touch. Please do. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.